you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Ethics in Open Source Research. The talk features Dr. Shelby Grossman speaking about ethical challenges that she has faced in her academic and open source research career, and answering questions from the server community about navigating ethical dilemmas. Dr. Grossman is a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory and a co-editor of the Journal of Online Trust and Safety. This stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on September 9th, 2022. Our guest today is Dr. Shelby Grossman, who is a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and she's a co-editor of the Journal of Online Trust and Safety. She studies topics related to online trust and safety, including foreign influence operations and self-harm. She teaches two courses, one of them is on open source investigations, and the other is on the politics of online trust and safety. She has a PhD in government. And as I've said already, we're very, very lucky to have her uh, here with us today to talk to us about ethics and open source research. She's going to give some practical examples um, of some ethical questions that she has to navigate um, um, in, her, in her career. So thank you very much, Shelby, for being here with us. Um, I, I'm going to pass over the microphone to you in a couple of minutes. I wanted to introduce the, the topic of uh, ethics in open source research with an example from uh, Bellingcat's recent work, and then I'll, I'll um, pass it over to Shelby. So um, ethics in open source research is something that comes up all the time. I'll tell you that uh, as a Bellingcat researcher, most of us do trainings, and we go to events, we give talks at universities and different places. And one of the questions that always, always, always comes up has to do with ethics, the ethics of conducting open source research uh, in its many different forms. So we had a, a really good example from Zentgraf, who I think is here. Hi, Zentgraf, who's a, a community member here on the Bellingcat Discord server. And he went to a talk that uh, Krista Grosev, who's the executive director of Bellingcat, gave here in Amsterdam yesterday. And Zentgraf has a really good description of a conversation that he had with uh, Christo after the talk where he asked him about um, you know, a, a, an ethical um, dilemma that arises when you do a geolocation, that can arise when you conduct geolocation. If you want to read about that uh, very vivid description that Centgraph provided, it's in the chit chat channel here in our server. And um, the, the issue that Centgraph raised, the ethical issue was, um, essentially, what are the ethics around doing geolocation if by conducting geolocation, you are potentially, for example, revealing military positions that result in people getting killed, right? Uh, this was within the context of the war on Ukraine. And that's a question that I, I've gotten many times. I'm sure Christo has gotten, has gotten it often as well. It's not an easy one to answer um, because as we're going to hear from Shelby, uh, ethical dilemmas are dilemmas. Like they're not called ethical easy questions, right? They're called ethical dilemmas because they're difficult to navigate and they're difficult to think about. And um, coming up to a, um, coming to a solution on an ethical dilemma is something that is very difficult sometimes. And um, I'll tell you just really quickly uh, an ethical dilemma that we faced early on in one of our uh, ongoing projects at the moment, which has to do with the war in Ukraine also. 
And this is the civilian harm map that uh, my colleagues have been working on um, since the, the, the start of this latest episode or this latest chapter in the war in Ukraine, the invasion in um, uh, February, the Russian invasion in February. And if you go to ukraine.bellingcat.com, you're going to see a map that we have been populating with verified visual evidence of harm against civilians in Ukraine. And there's hundreds of pictures and videos on there. We have a backlog of, I think, probably, I don't know, a thousand videos and pictures that we're still going through. And one of the one of the issues that we came up across almost immediately was that we noticed that many videos and pictures that were coming out of Ukraine were being recorded, obviously, by people who live there. And some of those videos and some of those pictures were, were being captured in a way that revealed personal information about the people who were recording them. So the best example I can give you, I think, is imagine that you are recording something from your living room window and you're looking out the window and something's happening out there and uh, you record that video and that video maybe shows a potential war crime being committed and you post that video on Twitter and on the one hand, that video is a really important piece of evidence because it potentially shows a war crime taking place. But on the other hand, by sharing it online, you're potentially calling attention to yourself, like very negative attention, right? Because if you geolocate that video, essentially what you're doing is you're saying, the person who recorded this evidence lives in this apartment building. Um, sometimes you can even say like precisely which building, so uh, which unit in a building. So not just like that building over there, but they live on the second floor of that building and this is the, the, the actual apartment. And so you can imagine how that might pose lots of ethical questions because on the one hand, publicizing that kind of video calls attention to potential war crimes that are being committed, which is important for many different reasons. But on the other hand, you're potentially putting the person who recorded that kind of material in real danger because if they live under Russian occupation, then suddenly they could be targeted, right? Um, if it turns out that, um, you know, the Russian military, for example, finds out that they're the ones who recorded this video because you helped them to make that determination because you geolocated it. And so um, that's, a, that's a challenge that we faced right at the beginning of this mapping project that we launched um, in March, I think it was, very early on in, in the stage of, of the war. And our solution to it was, well, we don't want to put anyone in danger. We don't want to put anyone at risk. So our solution to that was to not put those videos on our map. So in our workflow, we have a stage where we have to determine, is there identifiable information linking this video to a person or to someone's apartment, for example? And if the answer is yes, then we don't put that video on the map. So that was an ethical dilemma that we faced uh, in a project that we're working on right now. And that was our solution. Our solution was we don't wanna put people in danger, even if the video that they recorded is very important from a journalistic or an evidentiary standpoint, we don't wanna put anybody at risk. And so our, our solution to that dilemma of what to do was to say, well, let's err on the side of caution, let's not put people in danger. Um, let's not show those videos on the map. So that's just a really quick example of, of, of one of the kinds of ethical dilemmas that we face in our work all the time. The last thing I'll say before I hand it over to our guest is that we have an ethics board inside Bellingcat and we uh, meet to discuss 
these sorts of ethical dilemmas as they arise. They arise often, and it's something that we take very seriously in our workflow. And um, I'm, I'm very happy that there's people like Shelby out there who are working on you know, helping practitioners like ourselves work through these dilemmas. So I'm gonna hand over the virtual microphone to her now so she can talk to you a bit about this project that she was involved with and some practical experience in dealing with ethical dilemmas in open source research. So thank you again, Shelby, for coming. I'll pass it over to you now. Thanks so much, John Carlo. That was a really interesting example. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to talk for 20 minutes. Um, I'm going to start by giving an overview of this really cool ethics workbook that just came out a few days ago. Then I will talk a little bit about an ethical dilemma that I encountered a few years ago where I came very close to making a horrible decision. Um, and then I will talk just a little bit about how I've been teaching ethics and open source investigation for a class that I teach. Um, and Giancarlo, if my Wi-Fi at any point seems bad, just let me know and I will. So uh, to start to talk about this, this ethics workbook, so first I wanna be clear, I had nothing to do with the creation of this workbook. Um, I did not write it. My role was just that I got to help pilot it a few months ago. So the workbook is written by this woman named Melissa Hanham, who is an open source investigator focusing on arms control. And it was published by the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. And so they basically put out this like workbook, a facilitator's guide and, and a slide deck. It's primarily for people who teach open source investigation, but I think, I imagine most of you are like not teaching open source investigation, but I think this will still be, this will still be interesting. So the workbook starts out by giving, introducing six ethical frameworks, and they introduce these frameworks in like half a page, like they do it very kind of quickly. It's very much like a high level overview. And I don't know, I really appreciate this because I'm not the kind of person who gets a lot of joy from spending hours like reading you know philosophers work i know there are some people who do that's just not my cup of tea so i really appreciate kind of how simple they make this both for for me and for students so what are these these six ethical frameworks so first there is a utilitarian approach so this is an approach that involves making decisions by optimizing for aggregate overall utility then there is a rights approach so this is an approach that prioritizes um, making decisions that prioritize people's rights, maybe animals' rights as well. Then there's a justice approach that involves thinking about treating people equally. There's a common good approach that involves prioritizing the common good over individuals. There is a virtue approach. I find this one a little confusing, but I think the gist of it is like thinking about what kind of person will I become if I take this action versus a different action. And then there's a care approach, so like an empathy approach. So you're supposed to put yourself in the shoes of someone who would be affected by your decision and think about you know, how it would feel to be, to be that person. So these frameworks, obviously there's no like right framework. Sometimes they're gonna be mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're not gonna be mutually exclusive, but you can see how it'd be useful to have these frameworks when thinking about, for example, like the, the dilemma that Giancarlo just, just introduced. Okay, so they introduce these ethical frameworks and then they introduce their, their five-step process for, for making decisions. Um, and then they have these case studies where you practice applying these ethical frameworks and they're like five-step decision process. 
So their decision process is first to identify like what the dilemma is, second, to get all the facts, third, to weigh your options. I really like the fourth step, which is to test your decision with an imaginary hypothetical in your head or test out your decision with peers, and then to make a decision, to act on the decision, and to learn from what resulted from that decision. So I think that's kind of pretty straightforward. And so then they have these case studies, and I'm gonna tell you about the case study that I really like, that I think I'm going to use for my class going forward. So these case studies, again, were written by this woman who has like a lot of real world experience in this space. Uh, all the case studies are based on real things that have happened. Like sometimes they've changed the names of the countries. So they're very realistic. They're not like super simplistic, but they're also not like overly complicated. It's like the perfect level of complexity to have like a practical group discussion about these topics. Okay, so here is the case study that I really like. So it starts off by saying there are these like student research assistants who are working for a professor who monitors North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And every day these students are like monitoring various satellite imagery that they have access to to look for any kind of developments in North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And they are doing this at a time when tensions between North Korea and the US are really high. So the US has been making some like very severe threats about what they're going to do if North Korea tests another missile. Um, so one day the you know, student RAs like open up their computers and they're looking at some satellite imagery and they see a new object on a North Korean airstrip. It's like a rectangular object and it could indicate like an impending missile launch. But as always in these kinds of situations, there's some uncertainty and they can't rule out the possibility that the rectangle is actually just a container ship that's like preparing for some sort of construction project. So the question that they face is, do they make this information public? Because on the one hand, if they're wrong, it could be you know, really, really bad. On the other hand, if they're right and they withhold the information, it could also be be really bad. And then there's like this, what I think is a very realistic aspect to the case, which is that there are questions about whether they're going to get scooped by some other group if they delay publishing this information, because they're assuming that there are other groups in this space that are monitoring the same satellite imagery. So that's like the case. And then the guide provides, I think, a lot of like really excellent discussion questions. So for example, to what extent would publication of this information cause panic? Um, and then the, uh, another question that I, that I really like is, you know, if they really think that another group is almost certainly gonna publish this information, is there a way that they could publish this information that would be more accurate and more responsible than how other groups would share this information? And so then, you know, students are encouraged to kind of think through what the different ethical frameworks would advise for how to handle this dilemma. So for example, like the justice approach might suggest that treating everyone equally is an argument in favor of making this information public to everyone. Um, the utilitarian approach might suggest that publishing the information uh, you know, could increase the likelihood of war, which would not be optimizing for aggregate utility. So maybe you shouldn't publish the information. So that's like one example of a case that I really like and kind of how the workbook presents these. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna summarize any of the other ones, but just to tell you quickly about one of the other ones that I really like. 
There's a, a case about a woman who starts a new job at a company that does open source investigation for like government and private sector clients. Um, and it's a company that like doesn't have too many rules. It's kind of gritty. And one of uh, this girl's clients wants her to create sock puppets to monitor accounts. And at this woman's like old job that was, you know, really frowned upon and she has a lot of, you know, hesitations. And so you have to think through, you know, whether she should create sock puppets for this, for this contract. Um, and the reason why I like this case study a lot too is because again, it talks about like some really practical aspects of this decision. For example, like what is this woman's role in the company? Would she be fired if she, you know, went against her client's wishes? You know, I think these are things that like, you know, actually kind of come up and aren't, aren't theoretical and are important to, to think about. Okay, so that's like an overview of the guidebook. Um, maybe we can, I'll put a link to it in the, in the chat later on. Uh, I thought I would next just talk a little bit about this kind of near miss that I had um, a, few, a few years ago. Apologies if I sound like I'm out of breath, I'm, I'm pregnant, I'm not like dying or anything. Um, so in uh, 2020, I remember the date because it was, it was like March 10th or something because my office was really empty because uh, you know, the COVID like lockdown was about to happen. I'm in the office and I get an email from my boss and he says, hey Shelby, um, you know, I just, got, uh, I just got the phone with Twitter. It was like, I don't know, 8 a.m. in the morning. And he's like, and Twitter wanted to let me know that at noon today, a really big CNN story is going to come out. Um, it was like a Clarissa Ward story. And Twitter has suspended a couple dozen accounts related to this, this story. And they want to give us access to the accounts uh, now. The accounts are going to be made public at noon today. It was like 8 a.m. And it's about a uh, Prigozhin-linked uh, influence operation that involved Ghana. So I'm kind of like, you know, the go-to person here because I've done a lot of work on like Prigozhin influence operations in Africa. And so my boss is like, do you want to, you know, spend the next four hours like looking into these accounts and just write up a quick Twitter thread that you could, you know, put out at noon that kind of contextualizes this operation in the context of other Prigozhin Africa operations. And I'm like, oh my God, totally. This sounds so much, looks so much fun. So I, you know, put on some headphones. I open up this CSV file that has like some, you know, usernames for Twitter accounts that have been suspended. And I just start diving in. So, um, you know, I'm like looking up the accounts on archive.org and Googling the screen names to see if they have other social media accounts that are still alive. I really have no context. I don't know anything about like what the CNN story is gonna focus on. I just have this, this CSV that I've been told is attributed to a Prigozhin linked group. So I'm looking through the accounts and there are some accounts for like some real Ghanaian citizens who seem to be writing content about the US. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. You know, I'm going through them, going through them. And then I come across an account for a gay rights group in Ghana. And I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like clearly what's going on is, you know, gay rights, I've spent a lot of time in West Africa. Gay rights is like a really controversial issue in West Africa. So I'm like, clearly what's going on here is Prigozhin is trying to like polarize Ghanaian society around gay rights issues in the same way that they've tried to like polarize Americans around like various divisive issues. So I'm looking into the gay rights group. I find that they have an Instagram account that's still live. And the Instagram account has these like 
photos that in the US context, no one would think twice if you saw them. Um, they're like photos of you know, topless men kissing each other. But in the West African context, you know, these images could be a little provocative. And so I'm like, wow, this is like so crazy. Like they created this fake gay rights group. They're posting these really provocative photos, like really trying to like polarize Ghanaians. I'm like, obviously, this is going to be the focus of the CNN story, like that Prodosian created this like fake gay rights group. So, you know, I put together the Twitter thread. I have some tweets about some of the other stuff, but mostly I'm focusing on this gay rights group. So, so like five minutes before noon, it's like literally 11.55, I'm like rereading my thread and I'm like, oh man, you know, what if I was wrong? Like, I don't know how I could be wrong. Twitter has definitely suspended this account and they're saying that all these accounts are linked to Progosian. But if I'm wrong, that'd be like pretty bad. I would basically be like destroying the reputation of this like gay rights group. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna like cut these tweets. The CNN story is gonna come out. I'm gonna read it. And then almost certainly it's gonna be about this gay rights group. And then I'll just like add those kind of tweets back in. So it's noon, I publish my pared down thread. The CNN story comes out. I read it. So this was the story, if you all remember about how um, uh, Progosian had created this like fake NGO in Ghana that was uh, targeting Americans. It was like the, these supposed NGO employees were like writing polarizing content targeting Americans. There's no mention of the gay rights group in this story. So I knew one of the reporters on the story. So I DM him. I'm like, hey, you know, congratulations on the story. But I noticed you didn't talk about this gay rights group. Did you investigate it? You know, what are your thoughts on it? And he's like, oh yeah, we came across it. I know Twitter suspended their account, but we don't actually think they're involved. Um, we think maybe one of the employees or one of the volunteers at the gay rights group was maybe like somehow also linked to the NGO, but like the gay rights group is like totally authentic. And so I just kind of like sat back and I was like, oh my God, like I came so close. Like if I had put this out there, presumably all the like anti-gay rights groups, you know, in Ghana would have, you know, use this forever to try to discredit this group. Um, even like talking about it now, I still kind of like shake about how close I came to doing something really awful. So I tell this story um, about a third of the way through this class that I, so I teach um, an open source investigation class at Stanford to masters in international policy students. And I tell this story kind of about a third of the way through the class for a couple of reasons. So first, I kind of, you know, I, to some extent, my class like emulates some parts of the, the Bellingcat training where students like work on a group project throughout the quarter into a topic of their, of their choosing. And I think as they're doing that, it can be really tempting to like share things as they find them online. And I kind of want to scare them to discourage them from doing that. So that's kind of like one reason I tell the story. I also tell the story because I think like, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you're looking for inauthenticity, everything kind of looks inauthentic. And I see this happen with a lot of students and I, I now have ways to kind of make people aware of this. But like when you're looking for inauthentic accounts, you'll just kind of see inauthenticity even on totally authentic accounts. So I want students to kind of be aware of that. So I think this, this story definitely makes people more cautious. Um, it's backfired a little bit. So something that happened about a year ago was one of the student groups in my class, sorry, I'm just gonna get a glass of water one second. So one of the things that happened about a year ago was a student group did a really cool final project. 
So for their final project, they discovered that there was this Sudanese reporter. So we, we'd already known that there was a Sudanese reporter who was like secretly working for a Prigozhin influence operation. And what these students figured out was that the reporter, after the influence operation was uncovered, he went on to work for Sputnik. And I just thought that was like a really cool finding. Like, I don't know, maybe we already know that this phenomenon happened, but I thought this was kind of the first time I'd ever heard of something like this, where someone who was involved in like a covert influence operation went on to work for an overt propaganda outlet. So I thought this was like a really important finding. And it wasn't just that, they had all these other really cool findings about this uh, university in Russia that had been hosting a bunch of like Sudanese people who went on to work for a progression. And so, you know, the quarter ends and I reach out to them and I'm like, hey guys, it's totally your choice, but I think you should try to publish this finding. You know, I'm happy to help you try to kind of edit it a bit and clean it up a bit, but I think it's like really, really, really good. And they got back to me and they were like, we actually don't want to publish it. We just think it'd be really bad if we, if we got it wrong. And I think in that case, they were being a little too conservative. And I kind of think my story was maybe partly responsible for that. Um, so I don't know, this is just something I'm still grappling with in the course, kind of how to how to teach people about this. Um, so I don't know, I have some other kind of stories about various ethical issues I've encountered, but maybe I will stop there, Giancarlo, if we want to do Q&A. Yeah, I mean, let's play it by ear. But first of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, it was fascinating to hear it. I I love hearing, um, I think you call them like a near miss, like the stories of when, when almost everything, you know, could have <laughs> gone sideways, like really badly. Um, I think those are really great learning opportunities, not just for ourselves, but obviously for other people, right? Like sharing the times when we almost made a monumental mistake, I think is really cool. Um, um, and, and so thank you for doing that. Um, uh, maybe I'll talk for a couple of minutes to give people a minute to maybe collect their thoughts and ask questions if they're interested. Um, if not, maybe we can ask you to share another story. Um, if you want to ask a question, you can unmute yourself. No, that's not true. You can raise your hand. There's a way to raise your hand on here and I will unmute you and you can ask a question or you can type your question in stage talk chat, which is a channel that you should see on your, on your uh, channel window or whatever it's called on the left side of your screen, just above the stage. So there's a channel called stage talk chat. If you have a question for uh, Shelby, um, you can type it in there. You can also DM me if you don't want your question to be read by everybody else. Um, but you have those options. Um, maybe what I'll do then is I will ask a question. I'm just going through my notes here. Oh, uh, I'll make a comment on something that you mentioned, Shelby, that I think is really, really, really important. And I think this is all the more important for people who are just starting out in the, in the field of open source research. And you mentioned about um, the, the potential danger in sharing everything online as you're finding it, I think is the phrase that you used. Um, um, you know, there's some research I think that can be done on Twitter um, in the open. And I think, um, I don't know, I can think of really good examples of geolocations and the people who uh, I see that Jake's here, Eric's here. Um, if you want to jump in with it, with any examples that you can think of uh, as I'm talking, uh, go ahead. But I, I, I know that there's examples of like geolocations that have been done um, on Twitter threads where like lots of different people coming in and, 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 um, uh, adding their little bit of, uh, grain of sand 
and then in the end, at the end of the thread, you know, you found the place, right? I remember during the PS752 investigation, there was a couple of threads that were like that, that helped us to geolocate videos because people were pitching in. So that's one kind of work that can be done in, 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 in the open, I think, without much danger. Um, the opposite of that, I think, is anything that has to do with the identification of individuals, right? So uh, we've seen that happen a couple of times, including recently with a very uh, graphic video of torture um, that came out of Ukraine. Where there were lots of people trying to identify this person who was uh, seen in this video. And the danger, of course, with doing that kind of work in the open is that along the way to the correct answer, if you are getting to the correct answer, is that you'll have lots of wrong answers. And it's okay to have a wrong answer if you're doing a geolocation because you can say, well, I think it's this field. And then somebody will say, no, that's not the field. And that that's fine, right? Uh, but if you say, I think it's this person and here's his Facebook account and here's his name, and it turns out that that's not the person, you've done a lot of damage potentially to an individual, right? Because now it's, it's written forever in the internet that they were suspected of having committed like torture at some point. Um, so I think if you're a, if you're an early career, I don't know if that's the term, yeah, we could use that term, right? Like an early career open source researcher or somebody who's trying to get into open source research, that's a difficult space to navigate because you do want to be public, right? I think a lot of times people want to get their name out there and you want to be seen as you're contributing to the community. But on the other hand, you don't want to do it in a way that could cause harm. So again, thank you for that example there, for those examples there, Shelby, because, um, even though the story might have backfired a little bit with that last example that you gave, I think in general, it's a, it's a really good piece of advice to give students. I see in the stage talk chat, there's a couple of questions here. Uh, I'm going to read it out to you, Shelby, um, also so that it's in the audio for, for the SoundCloud clip for later. This is from Datura Matter. It says, uh, they say, I have a question. Why, is it, why was it so important uh, to release your Twitter thread before the CNN hit the mainstream media? Uh, I'm not coming from judgment, of course. I'm just trying to figure out like what is that process like. So this is going back to your to your story there, Shelby. Why did you want to um, uh, get out that Twitter thread before CNN came out with the news? I think it's a it's a great question. Um, so I mean, maybe it wasn't that important. I mean, I think our thinking was that uh, when this story came out, we wanted media to be able to contextualize it in the context of all the other Prigozhin Africa influence operations. And that's like a area where I really could kind of add value to the conversation. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it definitely wasn't important enough to risk, you know, getting it wrong, which is why I, you know, I kind of delayed a few minutes. So I think that's a totally good point. And then just kind of one thing on what Giancarlo, you were just saying, yes, I mean, the, my course really focuses on social media research. We don't do a ton of geolocation. so. It is kind of mostly about individuals. And I think one thing that I have found like really helpful because I'm kind of, if I find something that I think is cool, I'm kind of like incapable of like just not telling someone. And so what I advise my students to do is to kind of have their own little chat group where they can at least share it with each other so that they can, you know, get the satisfaction of like sharing their discovery, even if they're only, you know, 50% sure that they got it right. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and um, you know, you mentioned, um, the word scoop, uh, I think maybe at least once in your talk there, um, the scoop is real, right? Like the scoop is a thing that, that exists in, in, a, in this field. Like you, you, there is an allure obviously to being the first one to reporting, to report something, right? Especially if you're in a, in a privileged position where, where you are getting, you know, a heads up, right? Like, Hey, you know, these big power players in the world are moving at 
at noon and you have a chance to get in there a little bit early, right? Um, I know uh, I was I was just recently reading our policy plan, the Bellingcat policy plan, um, I, which I think is on our website now for for the next period. And there's a sentence in there about you know not chasing scoops, like we don't want to chase scoops. And um, I think that's where you you could get into a lot of trouble. Like once you start seeing like, oh my gosh, I'm going to scoop CNN, I'm going to scoop the BBC, like I'm going to be the first one to talk about this. You get excited, right? And, and that's where you know the more excited you get about a scoop, the more you have to be careful um, because it you know there's a chance that you could chase a scoop off a cliff, and it turns out that you're making a mistake. So it's it's great that you you know. Uh, cooler heads prevailed and the scoop was sacrificed uh, in the name of being correct. So that was really good. Um, we have a question here from uh, Quolavelli. Quolavelli, uh, good friend of uh, the server. And um, so thank you for being here, Quolavelli. The question is this. It's a really good one. I was taught at one of my university lectures that you should never do OSINT on your own country's army. Do you have in mind any other good thumb of rules when doing OSINT? Or what do you think about, about that rule? Um, what do you think, Shelby? Yeah, so this actually relates to one of the other stories I was going to talk about, though probably the billing cap people are like more equipped to answer this, but I'll just briefly uh, share my thoughts. So uh, I don't necessarily have thoughts about the, the military issue specifically, but we do encounter this like really interesting issue frequently. So... My team does a lot of reports on these like covert influence, foreign influence operations. And we're at Stanford. So one of the really nice things about being at Stanford is there are all these students who come from like all over the world. So, you know, we'll be working on a report about Turkey and it's not that hard to find a Turkish Stanford student who we can bring in. And it's really like win-win that, you know, the Turkish student provides really fantastic like cultural context for the report. It's usually pretty fun for them to help, you know, investigate these networks. Oftentimes the reports are newsworthy in the country that they're, that they're talking about. Um, my team has a philosophy that anyone who touches a report gets their name on it if they want their name on it. So, you know, it's a chance for students to like co-author a report. But the issue that we encounter is that sometimes it can be pretty dangerous for students who are from these places to have their names on the report but we don't want to be paternalistic and we don't want to you know, decide for the student what is and is not risky. So you know, we'll kind of give the student all the information and then let them make their own decision. But kind of typically what happens is that the student does want their name on the report, which I totally understand. I would probably make the same decision if I was in their shoes, but it, there's really kind of a question of like, do they fully internalize the possible risks here? And we had one situation exactly like this where you know, I feel like I did the best I could to explain to the student the risks of, of having their name on the report. The report ended up being extremely newsworthy in this particular country. It was a relatively authoritarian country. And uh, trolls for the president went after uh, this, this student, like on, on Twitter, and including making like kind of threats. And so, you know, everything turned out fine. The student is fine. Um, but it's just kind of something we think about a lot. Um, because again, we don't want to be paternalistic. We don't want to tell a student, you know, this is what's best for you. But there's kind of a question of like, can the student ever fully understand like what the outcome would be um, if they started to get harassed as a result of this? But I don't know, Giancarlo, if you want to add anything based on your experience. Well, yeah, that's a really good example. And and I think another, another example of a situation where it pays to be like really slow thinking and really deliberate in your thinking 
um, and to not get excited or carried away in the excitement of the moment and, and the possibility that you're going to uncover something and your name's going to get out there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think as much as, as much as, as we can, you know, we should take stock of what the potential dangers are in, um, in conducting an investigation. But of course, um, it's hard to predict how a story is going to get picked up. I know I've written stuff uh, and I've collaborated on projects that I thought nobody's going to read this. And then they, they get around a lot. And then the opposite is also true where I'll, I'll write something or I'll collaborate on a project and I'll go, wow, this is going to be huge. And like, no one looks at it. Um, so it, it's, it's a hard, uh, it's a, it's a hard assessment to make. I think like, how is this going to potentially impact me? Because I think a lot of it depends on how it's received, how it's picked up. Um, and unless you can, you know, like really see into the future and know that this is going to make a big splash or not, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, to make a decision, but I think, I don't know, erring on the side of caution, I feel like is my life motto. <laughs> I don't know. I try as much stuff as I can to err on the side of caution, but I don't know if that, that doesn't always work as a, as a rule of thumb, because you do have to take some risks, um, in life eventually. Right. Um, we have a, a comment here from Jake Godin. Hi, Jake. Jake says, there was concern with geolocation during the shoot down of flight uh, 752 in Iran with geolocating a specific building where someone's CCTV camera caught the explosion in the sky of the plane, uh, mainly because it may have put the person who lived in that area in danger with the Iranian government. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you really, really quickly. I was, uh, I was involved a little bit uh, on when the Bellingcat side of the PS752 investigation. We did find videos that uh, looked like they had been recorded from people's homes. And uh, as we are doing with the Ukraine project, we didn't publish those videos because we didn't want to get people in danger. We, we didn't want to put people in danger. Um, you also have to think that, uh, and remember that uh, uh, in particular with the PS752 case, we had no idea at, at the moment if the plane had been shot down deliberately, if it had been shot down at all in the very early stages. And so um, once we started to understand that, yes, it does look like the plane was shot down, we didn't know how the Iranian government was going to react. We didn't know if they were going to completely try to cover up the shoot down and if that would have involved cracking down on anyone who had released a video uh, about it. And so um, I think that the maybe we're thinking about the same video, Jake, but I believe that the New York Times, the visual investigations team published the video but they didn't, they, I, I think they had a sentence in the article saying we geolocated it, but we're not going to tell you where it is because we're concerned about the safety of the person um, um, who's, who, who, you know, who owns this camera because we don't know what's going to happen to them if we, if we tell you exactly where it is. Yeah. So Jake is saying that it was the same video. And I remember that that call was, I remember I personally had a bit of a, not an argument, but I had a conversation with someone on Twitter. Uh, the person was saying, tell us where the video is. Like we want it because it's, it's about verification and open source. You, sh you know, we should be able to, everyone should know where it is. And I, I remember I said, well, you know, no, like they made that decision not to do it. It's it's for the, the potential good of the person who recorded it or, or whose camera recorded it. So um, yeah, that's, uh, we're thinking about the same video there, Jake. Um, we have a comment here from, and by the way, if anyone is listening, you can ask any question uh, or make any comment about anything that we've said so far having to do with ethical uh, issues that arise when you're doing open source research. We have a comment from Mr. Muffin. Mr. F Muffin says, having a private chat isn't just useful for satisfaction, but also for bouncing the idea to someone with a cooler head who can point out the obvious things that you're blind to in the heat of the moment. Yes, I sometimes find myself chasing things that simply are not, 
there until someone points it out. Super uh, true, Mr. Muffin. Um, yeah, Shelby, you talked about that um, for your students. We, that's how we work at Bellingcat. We have chats with each other all the time where we're constantly doing checks on each other and saying like, do you agree? Like, you know, I think I found a spot. Do you think it's a spot, right? Uh, and as I said earlier, in my personal experience, the moment when you are most excited about having found the spot or the moment when you're most excited because you've, you've made the match and you found out who the person is, that's the most dangerous moment in an investigation because you've got hormones running through your body and, you know, being pumped into your brain that can, that do change the way that you think. And so the moment that you're, if you're ever catching yourself being excited about having done a geolocation, that's the most dangerous moment. That's when you have to get on a whatever signal chat, uh, Slack, Discord, and get a sanity check, get somebody to go over your work and say, am I seeing things or, or should I really be excited or, or, or should I not be excited? Um, anything you want to add to that there, Shelby, or, or I can ask a question. Um, uh, no, yeah, I, I like the way you just framed that. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I should say also, uh, that if you haven't taken a look at the workbook that Shelby described earlier, uh, you should, it's free and it's meant to help, uh, open source researchers as Shelby explained, uh, navigate tricky ethical dilemmas that come up in their work. One of the examples in the workbook is is from a Bellingcat investigation. It's the last one, I think, or one of the last examples in the workbook, and it has to do with the purchasing of data. So this is a question that we get asked a lot. Um, um, uh, you know, Bellingcat is an open source research organization, and yet uh, many of our Russia investigations are made possible by going to information that's not technically open source. It's information that is purchased uh, from data brokers. And... Um, it's a question that comes up all the time. I see that there are more questions in the chat, so I'll go to those. If you're curious about um, that, the dilemmas posed by that dynamic of, of, of purchasing data, uh, I encourage you to check out the workbook. It's uh, an example. It, I think it's on page 54, and it uh, talks about the Navalny investigation and how um, uh, Krista Grosov, who was the lead investigator uh, for us on that, purchased data and, and what the ethical dilemmas are there. Uh, we have a question from Ashbud. Hi, Ashbud. Ashbud asks, what is your own opinion about sock puppet accounts, either for passively collecting information or for interacting with other users? Any ethical dilemmas there, uh, Shelby, do you think, in using sock puppet accounts for passive collection or for interacting with people? Like, one of the, I, really, like, I really like the case study that the workbook has on sock puppets because it's not simplistic. It makes it like really hard to kind of come to a decision about what the right thing to do is. And one of the things they have in the in the workbook is a little spectrum of like the sock, <clears throat> excuse me, the like sock puppet spectrum, where you know on the one hand you have creating a sock puppet like a Twitter sock puppet account that you're literally just using to like monitor public tweets, and then on the other hand you have a sock puppet account that's like impersonating someone else and you know, inauthentically friending people and then communicating with those people and, you know, thinking about under what, what circumstances being at different spots on that spectrum would, would apply. So one of the things that's kind of interesting about my team is that like we're at a university. So we are also like subject to IRB restrictions. So the IRB, like the university ethics board is a really kind of complicated entity and to some extent, it only we kind of only have to get approval from them for research. 
for projects that we're going to publish in peer-reviewed journals, and we actually don't need their approval for what's considered more journalistic output. So if we put out like a white paper or a blog post, you know, we don't necessarily have to run things by them. But one of the things that we're trying to do is to start kind of combining like open source investigative techniques with like research that gets published in peer reviewed journals. And so for those projects, you know, we do need ethics approval. And I've never tried to get approval for a sock puppet account. Um, but I imagine if I tried, I would not be able to get to get approval for that. If you're if you're going to be deceiving people, there are kind of all of these like steps you have to you have to follow. And I guess I'll just briefly say kind of one other interesting thing that emerges being at a university. So I'm a political scientist and in political science, there's been a movement over the last decade to allow for replication of findings. There's been kind of this like replication crisis across many disciplines where all of these, you know, kind of canonical social science findings are found to like not really hold up when you like redo them. Um, and so to try to, you know, move toward a world where knowledge is, you know, the, the research that's coming out is, you know, more likely to replicate. There is a trend that you have to make your data and your methods public. Um, and, you know, before kind of I got into this space, I was like all in favor of that. You know, I was studying something totally different and, you know, I was all about making my entire data set, you know, public and like all of my codes so that anyone can rerun my code and change my models and see if the results hold. But doing replication with open source research is like a little trickier. So I'll just give like one quick example. So I have, so I'm about to talk about suicide in very broad terms for like a minute. So feel free to turn off the volume if you don't wanna think about that. So I have a project where we evaluate DuckDuckGo, Bing and Google based on their likelihood to surface pro-suicide content based on different queries. And so as part of this research, which has been like published in a peer reviewed journal, we basically like figured out what queries are most likely to lead to uh, search results that basically tell you like effective ways to, to kill yourself. And so, you know, we really struggled with how much of this to make public because both in the paper and in like replication data, because, you know, obviously you don't want to make it easier for people to find this information, but at the same time, you want the platforms to know that there's this, this gap and that there are certain types of queries that are resulting in, in pro-suicide search results. So I don't know, those are some of the kind of issues that we encounter being at a, at a university. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that. I, I'm glad that I didn't have any any sock puppets in my IRB application for, for uh, my PhD, but I can imagine that it'd be problematic uh, to try to navigate that those waters at the university. I'll say just really quickly that uh, I think from like my perspective, and I think I speak for uh, maybe not everybody, but um, I see Eric's in the audience. I think Eric might agree. If he disagrees, please raise your hand, Eric. Sock puppet accounts, we use them. Um, I, 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 we're using them um, um, in our uh, Ukraine research, for example. Uh, but the line that we draw is that interacting with people. So you, you know, we can have a, a sock puppet account that's just like on Twitter for monitoring Twitter, but we don't then like message people pretending to be other people. So a completely passive, only collecting information accounts. We we do use those, but the ethical boundary for us is at, at the moment of interaction, which we don't do. Um, so, um, let me jump to, so I see Mr. Muffin, you have a question. I want to jump to another person just to give him a, 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 a chance to, um, uh, for everybody to, to get their question in. This is from Boone Digby. 
Uh, and Boone asks, hi, Boone. Boone says, from an ethics standpoint during an investigation, what methods are best to keep, uh, are best used to keep personal bias in check? So from an ethics standpoint, what methods are best used to keep personal bias in check? Do you have uh, any, any insight on that, uh, Shelby? Um, just briefly, like one thing we do is we do try to red team our work to some extent, especially for some of the more high profile work. So sometimes this is a little tricky because if we're investigating a network that Facebook or Twitter tipped us off to, we have um, NDA. So we have a, we do not accept any money from the platforms, but we do have this kind of relationship with them. Um, and so uh, we are not allowed to go public about the network until an agreed upon date. But that agreed upon date is when we want to publish our work. So we need to figure out a way to be able to kind of red team our findings um, without violating the NDA. So we've kind of tried to come up with some, some ways to do that. So we'll have people who fall under our NDA who are not involved in the project to do a very close like word by word read of the report, um, you know, three or four days before we're ready to put it out. So I don't know if that's one thing that my team does. Yeah, thanks for that. I, uh, yeah, I think this is, I mean, I can't speak for everybody at Bellingcat. I, I'll tell you my personal experience is, um, is uh, I think what really helps is to have other people look at your work. Um, and so we, you know, we've, I think, have always had a peer review system uh, inside Bellingcat, which um, more recently, within the last couple of years, involves editors going through your work really, really carefully and um, checking for that kind of thing. Uh, for personal bias. Um, I think language gives out personal bias uh, a, a lot. Um, so I know, I know sometimes editors will edit my work and they'll pick out certain words that are kind of giving away like, hey, Giancarlo, is this really like the evidence talking or is it just, you know, your own personal bias? I think language is a giveaway. And so being deliberate with the use of language, I think is, is, a, is a way to check bias to make sure that you're not subconsciously injecting bias um, into a, undue bias into an investigation. And then the other thing I would say is, um, I think the methodology, the open source research methodology itself is a, is a pretty good check on bias if it's being followed, which I guess is the, the trick, right? Because if it's not, then, then it won't check for bias, right? But you, know, you mentioned replicability, Shelby, earlier. I think that's a big part of, of, the, of the work that we do. As you know, if you read a Bellingcat investigation, we don't just tell you, here's what we found. We tell you, here's what we found, but we also walk you through every step of the process. Um, so that, uh, you know, if we made a mistake, you can call us out on it. You can point it out and say, Hey, in step six, you did this, but you should have done that. And so I think that, um, in, in employing the methodology, the open source, uh, uh, research methodology, the, the image verification methodology and, and rigorously adhering to that, you, you, you do get to a point where you're checking personal bias, because if you're injecting bias, um, because you want the image to really be from this place or because you really believe that the person that you're looking at in the video is the guy that you found earlier, um, the more rigorously you, you adhere to the methodology, the, the more likely it is to spot those, those weak points where you're injecting bias into an investigation. Um, and we have a, a question here um, from uh, maybe not the last, well, it might be the last one, depends. Um, so we, we usually end like right at the hour. Um, although of course, Shelby, if you want to stick around, um, th there's people who might ask questions afterwards, uh, in the stage talk chat channel, and, and maybe we can answer them via uh, text. Uh, but we have about five minutes left. 
question here from Datura. Um, um, how do you pre-review your own work uh, when you're, sorry, how do you pre-review your work when you're going in solo and anonymous? Uh, I'll, maybe I'll jump in on that one really quick here, Shelby. So I, I hope that the server is a place where you can make friends, research friends, and um, hopefully get to a point where you are comfortable sharing your work. So I know there's a couple of, of uh, server uh, community members who've done that. Uh, I'm thinking of CentGraph specifically, um, who's written a couple of articles already. Morsaki has also done, has done so as well. They've gotten to points where they've written Medium posts and they've shared them on here. Um, so uh, hopefully this server is a, is, a, is a sort of a hub for people who do work solo, who don't have a, a, an office full of, um, um, you know, office mates, um, uh, you can, you can find that those sorts of people here, people who will help you with your work. Uh, do you want to add anything to that really quickly, Shelby? Yeah, I also, when I'm, I mean, when I'm kind of reviewing my own work, I try to go by the philosophy of show, don't tell. So if I find myself kind of making a claim that I'm not hundred percent sure I can back up, I'll kind of try to revise and say what I'm seeing as opposed to drawing a conclusion from this. And I think when I first got into this space, I found write-ups of open source investigations kind of infuriating because, you know, sometimes you're just like, but tell me, like, what, what do you actually think is going on? And hmm. often really good write-ups, like, don't do that. Um, and I've, I've learned that there's a reason why you don't do that. Though I'll say that one of the reasons why I loved the report that you all, Bell and Cat, just put out about the... I think it was a GRU agent like living in Italy was, mm -hmm. it was just like, it was so easy to read and so fun to read and so gripping at the same time that it didn't kind of overstate like any claims. So I'm definitely going to be assigning that piece in my class as an example of how to kind of strike that. that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for that. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll make sure I'll tell the editors and the, the, the uh, Christo uh, that really good feedback. Um, I think on that high note, uh, maybe we should end it here. I do have to uh, run a little bit early. We are three minutes short. I see that three dogs in a trench coat has, uh, oh, okay. I thought you were asking a question. Three dogs in a trench coat. Great name, by the way. Uh, but you're replying to somebody in the chat. Um, if you do have a question that we didn't get a chance to answer, please type it in the chat. You can tag me in your question. Shelby, can people tag you? Is that okay? If they, uh, want to at you and ask you a question. Right. Yes, totally. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, and if you're, listen if you're listening to this live right now, thank you so much for coming. And thank you so much for your questions and for your interest in this. We are going to be doing more stage talks in the future. The next one hopefully will be next week. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud or another platform in the future, get in the server, come to the stage talk so you get a chance to ask questions of our wonderful guests. Uh, like the one that we had today, Shelby Grossman. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jack Carlo. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.